All right. Well, um, real quick, um, we are going to enter in a little bit differently than we usually do, um, and we're going to just jump right into a little time of prayer. Um, and if you are or been around us for a while or this is your first time, um, we love prayer here at Antioch. We think prayer is what moves the ball. It's what shakes things. Um, and so, and also whether you're like new to the whole Jesus thing or you, you would consider yourself like, man, I knew him from the womb. Um, prayer is literally just one of the coolest things about following Jesus. Um, and I'm just going to uh, define prayer pretty simply for us. Prayer is dialogue with God that changes you and changes the world. Does that make sense? Dialogue with God that changes you and changes the world. That's prayer. Change is happening whether it's in you or out of you. Um, and it's just a conversation with Jesus. And so uh, I'm just going to throw up a little scripture for us uh, to give us a little vision for how we're going to pray. It's Mark 11:24. 24. It's one of my favorite verses. Do we have that one? If not, I'll just read it. Um, it says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Um, super simple, but whatever you ask for in prayer, just believe you've gotten it already and it's gonna be yours. Isn't Jesus so good? Like he's literally just like, hey, just ask me and believe that you've gotten it and, and there it is. And, um, and obviously prayer um, is something we wanna do with Jesus. We're not just on our own, just asking for like Ferraris and stuff. If God wants to give you a Ferrari, he'll probably make that clear to you. Um, but um, we, are on our, we are just asking and believing God and partnering with him on the earth. And so... Um, Real quick, we're gonna pray for uh, America, actually. I just as I was praying for tonight, I just felt, just been feeling it burdened on my heart that our nation um, is sick in a lot of ways and needs healing. Um, and I don't know what your perspective on that is. Please know I'm not getting political, so please don't tense up on me. Um, but God is governmental, even if he's not political. And we see throughout the Bible um, that, that Jesus honors governments that honor him. And it's actually one of the key places that he releases blessing. And Matthew, I think it's Matthew, one of the gospels actually tells a story about nations called sheep and goats, whether they obeyed the Lord or not. And as an American nation, we have just kind of been drifting from our Christian roots. And I just felt led for us to just kind of pray. There's really power when we pray. Another scripture says, if we pray together and agree on anything, then we know we have what we asked for. And so when we're all in here agreeing on the same thing, that God loves the U.S. and he wants to move here in power, um, then we know that we have what we asked for. So I just felt led to pray. So what is it going to look like for two or three of you in groups? So just the people next to you, um, we're just going to pray for a few minutes. And it's just short bullet point prayers. You don't get points if you sound more spiritual. The only way you get points is if you pray from the heart. Does that make sense? And so just think of it like you are good friends with the king. He hears you. You've got him on speed dial. And you can call up the king of the universe and say, this is what I want you to do in America. Does that make sense? And so we're going to pray for our government. We're going to pray for our president, Supreme Court. However God leads you, um, please pray for all the different issues that are happening in our nation, that God would um, heal our land of, like, the abortion issue and various things, like gender issues and the different stuff that God is just wanting our nation to heal from and that has come from us kind of stepping away from our Christian values. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay, cool. So just break up into groups of two or three next to you, and we're just going to pray for a few minutes, and I'll close this. So...
Jesus, we just thank you for America, God. We thank you for this place we live in, God. We're so often fixed with what you want to do in the nations of the earth, but we thank you for what you're doing in our nation, God. We thank you, God, from the top down, from Joe Biden to the Senate, the Supreme Court, and all of our government, God, that you would show up in power. And you say that when your people humble themselves and pray and repent from their wicked ways, that you will forgive their sin and heal their land. And we just ask for healing for America, God. We ask that you would come in our country, God, and the, the culture that's forever is not forever, but is just in this moment seems like it's just steadily drifting from you. We ask, God, that you would bring revival in our nation, God. You'd bring revival on our campuses, God. You'd bring revival in our government, God. We thank you for administrating justice and righteousness. We thank you that it's your passion for nations to be healed, and you have a plan for every nation on the earth to be restored. And we thank you that that is so for America. And so we just thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Come, show up. We ask right now that you would show up to President Biden in a dream. That, God, that you would show up to the Senate, that you would convict, that you would heal, that you would stir hearts in our government, God, from, from, our, from our federal to our state government to our city governments. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Cool. Thank you for praying with me. Um, it's really cool because when you pray, you, like, just participated in changing the world and one day, God's going to show us everything he did on the earth. And if we prayed with him in that, we could just stand and testify and say, God, I, I champion your thoughts. And so thank you for championing God's thoughts and what he wants to do in our country. Um, a little bit about me. I know I haven't introduced myself yet. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Dawson. I am the ASU college pastor. Forks up. So... Love our GCU crew too, but I totally spend a lot of my time at ASU, but I'm just passionate about you guys, college students alike, just encountering Jesus, man. There's nothing else. There's nothing else but him. And I just really, the reason I do this is not because, um, you know, like I make the most money in the world or anything like that, but it's really just because Jesus touched me as a college student, and I know he can touch you guys. So... Um, a little bit about me, I moved to Phoenix a few years ago after graduating from LSU, go Tigers. Um, so I'm a little bit of a dual school guy, you know. Um, and um, met my wife out here, her name is Sada. Um, she is absolutely incredible, we've been married for two years now. And so um, just really love her and marriage and life. Um, and so this is my, uh, yeah, you know, and this is my fourth year as our ASU college pastor. Um, and just super excited to be here speaking with you guys tonight. A little bit about us as a church. How many guys, well, you don't have to show up, but how many, how many guys have you been here for like one or two times, but this is basically your first time or you're, you're pretty new here? Be pretty bold. Let's go. Okay. I love it. Welcome. Welcome. Um, well, if you're wondering who we are, we are uh, a church called Antioch. You probably know that because you're sitting in this massive sanctuary. Um, but we are a church called Antioch, um, and we love Jesus. We have a passion for Jesus and his purposes in the earth. There we go. Um, and so... Um, we just, the, our church started um, actually out of Boston, was church planted, which is actually planted out of another church. And so the fun thing about us is that we're not just like a church that somebody started, but we're actually part of a bigger family. And that makes life really fun because we have about 50 different cities with about 50 different churches where we have Antioch churches across the country. And we have about 100 overseas teams in various countries um, that are just doing the work of the kingdom, sharing Jesus, preaching the same way we are, sharing the gospel, loving people, making disciples. And so it's really fun because we have friends all over the country because of it, because we've been running with this, this Antioch movement. And so um, if just a little bit about us, just come, come run with us. We 
We love Jesus. I don't know what else to say. Um, but um, Cole, I titled my message for tonight, Simple Obedience Changes History, okay? Simple Obedience Changes History. Totally stole that from a Lindy Conant song, but I really think it's relevant and true. Um, and tonight, I just felt led to share one story that has just been rocking me. Um, and uh, it's, from, it's from a familiar, there's a movie about it. Has anyone seen the movie Dunkirk? Yeah? Yeah, let's go. Okay. Um, Dunkirk's a great movie. In my opinion, it's not Christopher Nolan's best, but it's great. Um, and um, it's a good historical movie and just really kind of does a really good job of being accurate to what those soldiers went through. Um, but Dunkirk, or the miracle of Dunkirk, is literally maybe the most pivotal, miraculous, odd thing that happened during World War II. How many of you guys have heard of World War II? Yeah? Okay. Come on, you might be living under a rock if you haven't, and that's okay. Um, I'd be curious to see what living under a rock looks like. Um, but anyway, so this is early World War II, and so what just happened was that Nazi Germany, led by Adolf Hitler, just invaded a bunch of different nations around Germany, and the Allies, which would be Britain, France, and a few nations that I, I can't remember off the top of my head, um, jumped in against Germany because of what Germany was doing of just conquering nation after nation after nation. And so what happened very on early in the war was a lot of hopefulness and a lot of excitement from places like Great Britain, but then a lot of disappointment because they consequently got their butts kicked. Um, and so Germany was running a new type of military. The, um, war, the World War II soldiers who were coming in um, from Britain were kind of still thinking World War I, so 20 years old tactics. Germany totally just caught them by surprise pinned them on this beach on, near a port city called Dunkirk in France, hence the name. Um, and so on this beach was not just a small chunk of people to where you're like, oh man, we just lost those guys and those guys would be probably killed or taken as POWs. But there was actually 400,000 soldiers that were stuck on this beach. And that's like, if you've ever been to Tiger Stadium in Louisiana, please tell me if you have, because that would just be fun to bond over. Um, but if you have... It's three times the size of one of the world's largest stadiums. That's how many people were stuck on a beach. And so what's not okay about this is that this was at a very pivotal time for Britain because this was their army. Like, this was their army. This was their guys. And France, if you're familiar with geography, is a hop, skip, and a jump from Britain. And so you've got Britain freaking out because all of a sudden all of their army is pinned and they're thinking, we're done, and there's no way to evacuate them, and they're just stuck. Um, but as with most crises, when God's involved, there is a great deliverance. Um, and God was involved in really intricate and cool ways with the miracle of Dunkirk. Plot twist, they were rescued. I'll get to that. Um, but it started actually about 30 to 40 years prior in 1906. In 1906, in Great Britain, there was something called the Welsh Revival. Has anyone heard of the Welsh Revival? Do we have any revival history fans in here? Um, if you're like, what is revival history? Just Google it and like look it up. It's really interesting. But just different ways God's moved throughout the generations of the earth since the time of Jesus. Um, and the Welsh Revival was um, really profound. I don't remember the exact story of how it started, but there was this guy during the Welsh Revival named Rhys Howell, who was a coal miner who just got wrecked. Like he just encountered Jesus. The Spirit of God came and touched his life, and he just decided, you know what? I am a man who's passionate about Jesus, and I'm going to give my life for what Jesus wants me to give my life to. 
Um, and when this happened, um, Reese, because of how God touched him, was like, okay, I'm just gonna obey Jesus in whatever he asked. And so what that led Reese to do was he led, went to South Africa as a missionary, saw God move there in powerful ways. But eventually in the 1930s, God had bigger plans and he was like, hey, I want you to start a Bible college in Wales. And so um, Reese goes back to Wales to start this Bible college. And um, when he does that and obeys God, God starts really showing up in powerful ways. And in 1936, so before World War II, these students start experiencing the power of God in ways that they didn't know how to explain. Um, it started with a group of girls who just wept for hours before the presence of God and didn't know why. I mean, that's not, probably for most of us, that's not your like natural inclination. And so when God shows up though, like things happen. Um, and a quote from that time um, that I took from a website that wrote an article about this event um, just describes the, the scene. It was basically an awful sense of God's nearness began to pervade over the whole college. There was a solemn expectancy. God was there. And yet we felt we were still waiting for him to come, and in the days that followed, he came. He did not come like a rushing mighty wind, but gradually the person of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, filled all, all our thoughts. His presence filled all the place and his light seemed to penetrate all the hidden recesses of our hearts. The revelation of the Holy Spirit's person was so great, all our previous experience seemed as nothing. And I just love that. I'm like, can you imagine encountering God in such a way where you're like, everything I've ever experienced before that, that was nothing. Like, um, and this is what was happening. And these students became addicted to God. They fell in love with God because they encountered his love and they loved his presence. They were so passionate that they started praying through the night, and as they were doing them, God began telling them secrets of his heart. A couple years later, before the war began, the Lord revealed to them through prayer that, um, that the enemy, who was real, by the way, was going to use Adolf Hitler to interrupt the Great Commission on the earth, which is God saying, I want every single person on the earth to hear the gospel. Um, and during this time, they just began to pray. And instead of praying for their local area, they were like, we just need to pray for the nations. They're praying for Germany. Um, and then war breaks out. And like I said, everything that just happened, uh, that I described, happened in Dunkirk. And they get here to this beach. Um, and Jesus had other ideas because he had already been pouring himself out on these college students. They were college students, by the way. Um, and um, where am I at here? So many in Britain were panicking when this happened, but these guys were confident. It was so cool to read this. Um, the clock was ticking and these Brit the, most of Britain is panicking, thinking, oh, we're gonna get invaded next because we're gonna lose our army. And these guys were confident. They're like, God's already shown us we're gonna win. God's already shown us we're gonna win. All we have to do is agree and pray it in. And from the book, Reese Howell's Intercessor, which is um, written by Norman Grubb back in the 50s, um, I just described some of the things they prayed. So I'm just gonna read a big chunk of it. Um, so the Dunkirk evacuation started on May 29th and finished June 4th. And so it was this period of time and this starts on May 28th and it's basically their prayer journals. Um, on May 28th, the day before the miracle evacuation began, Mr. Howells again was alone with God. And in the prayer meetings, the prayer was for God to intervene at Dunkirk and save our men. And as the Spirit came upon them in prayer and supplication, what one prayed at the end expressed the assurance given to all. I feel sure something has happened. And so that was the response to their prayer meeting. Something's happened, like God's doing something. The day of, May 29th, was the day of the evacuation of Dunkirk. 
Mr. Howells, Reese Howells said, let us be clear in our prayer that the intercession is gained. The battle is the Holy Spirit's. See him outside of yourselves tonight. He is there on the battlefield with his drawn sword. And I just think that's really cool. And then the next day, from a worldly standpoint, there is no hope of victory, but God has said it. It could not come tonight and ask him to intervene because we've already said that he is going to intervene. Instead of bad news about our soldiers, if he is on the field of battle, he can change that and make it very good news. Oh, for God to lift us up tonight. We are not to run into any panic thinking the Nazis are going to win. Germany must be delivered as well as England and France. We may have to go through far greater sufferings yet, but I'm not going to doubt the final issue. And I think this is really powerful right here. He says, we state in the plainest terms, the enemy will not invade Christian England. And so you've got this group of intercessors praying through the night, prayer meetings from seven to 12, fasting, doing all this stuff, contending just because they love God and they wanna obey him and God puts something on their heart. And that week, almost 400,000 soldiers were miraculously rescued. Inexplicably, supernaturally calm waters allowed small boats to cross a massive channel to rescue soldiers because the big boats couldn't make it to the land. And so they, they needed a miracle of the ocean to actually come. Um, Hitler made some very key, very much God-caused mistakes to where Germany was not pressing against them and made some mistakes so that they actually had time to get out. And not only that, but the very clouds covered the entire beach so that the German Air Force could not come on top of them and just bomb them. It was supernatural. It's actually very baffling, um, but as believers, we know that God had something to do with it, right? If you know the course of history, God did not side with Germany. Um, and um, with the main bulk of the army saved, the evils of Nazi Germany were abated and Britain was able to recoup, build back their army, and eventually re-enter into combat against Germany. Um, this victory was so crucial that many say without it, Britain would have lost the war and Germany would have won World War II and we would be in a very different world today. Winston Churchill, the leader of Britain in those days, called the Battle of Dunkirk, the miracle of Dunkirk, a miracle of deliverance. King George at the king of that time called a national day of prayer. The entire nation was rallying and spearheaded by it were these college students who just loved Jesus and caught a burden from his heart. And you might ask why I'm sharing this story, and it's just that simple obedience changes history. Reese Howells wasn't special. He was just a young man who caught the idea that God loved him and was like, I'm gonna be one who says yes and if you're new to this Jesus thing, because I don't know where you guys are at in the room, but if you're new to this Jesus thing, don't be intimidated. This really just starts one day at a time and nothing world-changing happens overnight. So please don't think, oh my gosh, I need to be praying for the deliverance and facilitating the deliverance of Ukraine right now. Please pray for the Ukraine, actually. But, but don't think that like you need to be this like Christian hero overnight. It starts with a simple yes. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and we've said this before, but we are a people with a passion for Jesus and its purposes, his purposes in the earth. And that's not just a catchy tag, it's actually deeply, wholly true. If you know us, we love Jesus and we love what he's about on the earth. And we wanna be where he is on the earth. Um, and my ask to you as we talk about like a crazy God story is not to judge your own passion, 
um, we can have this like un mental unrighteous judgment where we unrighteously judge ourselves as like not being enough. And my ask for you as I preach would actually be just to set that aside and say, God, what are you wanting to stir in me when it comes to passion for Jesus and his purposes in the earth? So if you guys can turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to camp out here for a little bit, and we'll be in 1 John a lot. So it's a small book. Um, 1 John chapter 5 is toward the ends of the Bible. There is a gospel called John, and a gospel is a basically the story of Jesus from his birth to his death and resurrection. And then there are letters, and those are 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John was a disciple of Jesus who became an apostle of Jesus, meaning he stuck with Jesus until Jesus filled him with the Spirit, sent him out to change the world. Does that make sense? And so John was writing letters to these churches to equip them, to encourage them, and give them wisdom. And so we're going to pick up in 1st John chapter 5. Um, but first, and you can just keep it there because we'll be kind of in and out of it. Um, but first, we're in a series called Passionate People. Do we have that graphic? Let's go. Um, we're in a series called Passionate People. Um, last week, Chris went hard teaching us about Luke chapter 15 and how God loves us and how God is a passionate God for us who takes us from the middle of like the messiest of messes and says, I'm gonna restore you, I'm gonna lavish you with my love and I'm gonna heal you and bring you back in as if nothing happened. Like that's how good God is. And Chris went there last week. Um, and the good thing about going from that to like talking about where we can be passionate is that God's love is supposed to stir us. We are designed to respond to love by loving God in return. Does that make sense? And I got a verse for that. It's in the chapter before in 1 John. It says, we love because he first loved us. Super simple. If you've never memorized a verse, go there. It's super easy. Um, um, but what is it to passionately love God? What does that actually mean? You know, like when we talk about having a passion for Jesus, you might have an idea of someone in your head. You might have an idea of a particular behavior. You might think of like an upper room video or something. But what does it mean to have a passion for Jesus? Is God moved by our emotions? Is he loved by our voices and how we sing to him? Um, is it our attendance at Awaken or our quiet times in the morning when we meet with him? Um, or is it like Reese Howells? Is it, our, is it our prayers that he sees as like overflowing passion towards him? The good thing is, is that in 1 John 5, Jesus clearly outlines what it means to have passionate love for him. And so we're gonna spend some time on these first five verses. And I'm reading out of the NLT because I like how the NLT words this one. And it says, you can just follow with me in verse one, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I love that. The entire book of John is like one big collection of like flowing together, blunt one-liners that'll pierce your heart. And so I just picked a few and we'll throw some more out there here in a minute. Um, but if a truth on that, because they kind of are like little individual truths that flow. If a truth in that that we just read like sticks out to you, like grab onto that, chew on that thing, write it down. Um, and, and that's probably God stirring something in your heart. But we're just gonna take it line by line, okay? 
Um, the first line, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. Um, in the Greek, which is the original language, um, the good news is, is that everyone means everyone. And so um, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And I want to highlight that it's belief that, that they're talking about, John's talking about. It's not feeling, it's not understanding, but it's believing. It's believing that Jesus is the Christ makes me a child of God. And that's not a changing identity. How many of you guys, like, when you became your dad's son or daughter, um, you became his son or daughter? Like, it, it wasn't something you had a choice in. It wasn't something you're like, man, I just, I just don't feel like I'm my dad's son today. Like, I just don't. Like, it's not anything like that. Um, it's not subject to feelings, intellectual debate, or disagreement. And I just want to say that it's a lie from hell when the devil tries to tell you that you can't be God's son or daughter because you did this, or you don't look like so-and-so, or you don't look like Jesus because you just did this, or whatever. That is a lie from hell. And the what you do with that, the Bible says we take things captive. You say, I take that captive. And Jesus, I receive that because I believe in you, I'm God's kid. I believe I'm God's kid because I believe in you. Does that make sense? Next line, everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. You are a child of the Father, just as Jesus said, um, or that John said here. Um, and to love him is likened to your ability to love others. How well you're loving others actually reflects your love and passion for God. Does that make sense? Like how well you love others reflects how well you love God. And, and, John, and John is intentionally making a correlation here. And he actually goes there in the chapter before in First uh, John 4, and you can pull that up. Uh, this one's in the NASB. It says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Is there any room for a debate in that? Like, can we reason that at all? Um, I love it. I love how blunt he is. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Now, there is good news because if you're thinking, man, I am totally holding a grudge against that person, or man, I have not forgiven that person, there's good news. You are still alive and God's inviting you to change right now. And that's really cool. Um, but I want to call out something called bitterness. And just speaking as we're talking about loving God versus hating our brother, um, hatred and unforgiveness are like symptoms of bitterness, or bitterness is a symptom of them. They just kind of go together. And they will kill your love for God and your friendship with him. And so if there's a place of bitterness or unforgiveness in your heart, which turns into hatred, um, my challenge to you will be to go there with Jesus. And I know that there's many wounds and painful things in the room. Believe me, I've been through my fair share of pain as well. But um, God is inviting you to forgive that person because ultimately he's forgiven you. And you may have a separate struggle, and this is just a little check engine like gauge for you, okay? You may have a separate struggle. It might be an addiction. It might be criticalness. It might be gossip. It could be any number of things. And it might actually be linked to unforgiveness in your heart for someone. Isn't that crazy? Like, that's how much God cares about forgiveness. Like, if we don't go there, then 
we can actually manifest in something completely separate and have no idea that there's something lurking underneath of bitterness. Does that make sense? Um, and so there's a scripture here in Hebrews 12, 15, and I'm reading it out of the New Life Version because I love how it puts it. And it says, um, see that no one misses God's loving favor. Um, 12, 15, yeah. Um, see that no one misses God's loving favor. Do not let wrong thoughts about others get started among you. If you do, many people will be turned to a life of sin. See that no one misses God's loving favor. Do not let wrong thoughts about others get started among you. If you do, many people will be turned to a life of sin. So I'm gonna get really practical. You're probably thinking, okay, how do I get free of that then if there's some unforgiveness there? Um, ask God if there's any bitterness or unforgiveness in your heart. It's super simple. God, is there any bitterness, any unforgiveness? He might bring up a memory. He might bring up a person. He might bring up an event. You might already know because it's something you wrestled with before you walked in the door. Um, and then forgive them. And I just want to be clear, we don't forgive the sin, but we release them to Jesus, and we do not let their sin against us have any hold over us. Jesus forgives sin. We just get to champion them and release them to Jesus and, and, and love them that way. Um, and then just do it again. Forgive again and again and again and again. It's super simple. If you're wrestling with unforgiveness, there's not like this labyrinth you have to go through. Just choose forgiveness and do it again and do it again. And every time God's gonna take you into a deeper place of freedom. Cool? Make sense? I know I'm getting a little practical. It's just because I want you guys to have something to walk away with. Um, Okay, back to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to go to verse 2, so hopefully you just kept this open. Um, we know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. We can only love people if we keep passion for Jesus and we do what he says. We know we love God's children if we love God and we obey his commandments. You're thinking, how am I loving my brothers, my sisters in this room are you loving God, and are you doing what he says? Make sense? So then verse three kind of spells that out a little bit more, and I love this verse because it's so powerful. And it says, loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Um, like I said, I got married two years ago, and... Um, when you get married, guys, you just switch from singleness to marriage, and there's just, like, you learn a lot. And one of the things I had to learn pretty early on is that I don't have to be seen for my intentions. Like, I don't have to be seen for my intentions. Because um, when you, as a human, naturally have good intentions but totally hurt your spouse or your friend or whatever in, in, in any given situation, um, you don't have to be seen for what you really wanted to do because that's not what happened. And so I had to learn how to not be seen for my intentions. But I will say this, um, and you could probably attest to this in the room. If someone, if you fail and someone sees your intentions and calls them out, man, it can feel like water to your soul because it just kind of hits that inner area where all of us at the end of the day want to do good and love people and live godly lives and like follow Jesus. But um, when you, someone like calls out and it's like, hey, I know you didn't mean to do that. Like I know your heart. It's like water to our souls. And um, God has intentions. And the different thing with God is that he's never done anything wrong. And so he perfectly manifests his intentions every time. But like I said, there is a devil. 
And that devil has lied to our culture about the terms commandments and lied to our culture about the term obedience. He wants you to know that his intentions in giving you commandments are to keep you from evil and cause you to flourish in life. And any other thing sown is a lie from the devil to your heart. So if you're tensing up when I mentioned commandments and, and just like look at that scripture and as much as you gotta say it, God, your commandments are not burdensome. Your commandments are not burdensome. It's kind of like when your parents say, don't touch the stove. And then you touch the stove and you're like, why did I touch the stove? I now have a, a burn on my finger. Um, and God's like, I just don't want you guys to touch the stove. And let me be real, sin, distraction, complacency, destroy. And there's a reason that God tells us to do things because he doesn't want destruction for our lives. And I, I do wanna say though, um, when we talk about commandments, like people can abuse the idea of commandments and those people were called Pharisees, if you've ever read the Bible. Like those people were called Pharisees and they were actually labeled as legalistic and, and sometimes even Jesus labeled them in a worse light than he did the prostitutes and the tax collectors, which would be like the extortionists and those who like stole money from you. And he's saying, oh, being legalistic is actually worse in a lot of ways. Um, and I just wanted to read this verse from Isaiah 29, 13. And Jesus quotes it when he's actually talking to the Pharisees. Um, but it says, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. And God's looking for obedience from the heart. He's not interested in us doing the right things. He's not interested in performance. And let me just tell you, doing the church thing is empty if you're not obeying God from the heart. It will not satisfy you. And so do, do what he says from the heart. Just do it. Say, God, I wanna obey you from a pure heart and I don't care what it looks like. And the key here is just that his commandments are not burdensome. The longest chapter in the Bible, can anybody tell me what it is? Psalm 119. The longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. It's a very long poem where the primary reason it's written is David telling God how much he loves his commandments. It's basically on every line, how I love your precepts, how much delight it gives me to keep your law. Like it's every line. And so God has intended us to delight in his commandments. They're not burdensome. And this is different than performance. And this is where we get back to the idea of obedience, right? Because if we love God and we obey his commandments, then it's clear simple obedience changes history. And it's daily obedience that counts. It's not the big things. The miracles like Dunkirk start with choosing to forgive your brother and sister, choosing to give generously, choosing to get up in the morning a little earlier and read your Bible, choosing to say no to that drink or whatever that thing is. It starts with the little things. And can I just say, can we just simplify our lives around the idea of obeying God? Like, can we just simplify our lives? Like, can we take the worldly stuff that just is a distraction and is not good for us and wants to rip our hearts out and lay it on a platter and throw it away? Can we just take that and say, no, I just, I just wanna simplify and obey you, God. What are you saying? And then can we take the churchy stuff, the, the performance stuff, the I get points for looking spiritual or wearing the cool Christian t-shirt or knowing that spontaneous song, and can we just take that and say, that means nothing if we're not obeying him from the heart, and I just wanna simplify and do what you say, and I don't care what it looks like. 
Some of you in this room are gonna be like the Elijahs in the Bible who went around in caves and shared the word of the Lord and had a crazy life. And it doesn't look like everyone else. And that's where obedience from the heart really indicates. Are you willing to step out away from others and do what's different? It's just a good gauge for obedience. Again, it's not about performance. Please hear me on that if you hear one thing. It's about our hearts responding to him in action. And I just want to read 1 John chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 3 through verse 6. And it says, By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The repetition here. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we're in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to himself walk in the same manner as he walked. In other words, when we keep God's word, he perfects his love in us. And if we say we have come to know God, but we do not keep his commandments, we're liars. That's not just you, that's me. If I, don't, if I say I love him and I do all this stuff up here, but I'm not obeying him at home, I'm a liar. Um, and God doesn't expect you to be like Jesus overnight. So if you read that last verse and it says, whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. If you read that and you're like, shoot. Like one, that should convict us. Um, but two, um, God's inviting you to commit to becoming like him. He's not expecting you to become like him in a moment. Does that make sense? Like it's a journey and it's one step at a time. And he starts where you're at, no matter how messy that might be. He delights in taking like the biggest mess you can imagine and making it beautiful and whole. And that's his heart, guys. Like that's his heart to take our mess and make us free, make us whole and stand upright. And he does that through obedience. He doesn't do that through the motions. He doesn't do that through life group attendance. He doesn't do that through listening to worship songs in the morning. He does that through obedience. As I was praying this morning um, and just praying for tonight, I just wanted to call a few things out, some messes that God wants to meet you in and that you have perfect ability to obey him from. Some of you in this room um, have been just in sexual sin, and um, there's no condemnation for me on that end, but I even was praying and was like, man, there might even be someone in here who's just like slept with someone in the past week, like just has really gone there. And I just wanna say to you that if that's the case, that God, you can obey God from right where you're at and take a step, and that's what God's inviting you into. Some of you haven't forgiven yourself for something in the past, and God's inviting you to take that step of forgiveness as your obedience point tonight. He's not expecting you to do something and obey him later when you overcome that, but he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm right there with you. Just step with me. Just do what I say. Some of you pride yourself on looking a certain way. Maybe it's how you look, or maybe you're not even like thinking like that, and you're like, that sounds prideful, but then when you say something spiritual, you walk away thinking about what you said and how other people felt when you said that. Um, and God's inviting you to take a step out of pride and into humility. 
God's inviting you to obey him in a deeper way. And some of you guys are just wrestling with sadness and anxiety. 